I know a lot of us have been feeling under the weather lately. It's that time of year. And according to a study done by the University of Arizona, they discovered that your keyboards have hundreds of times more bacteria per square inch than a toilet seat. I heard your mama has more bacteria per square inch than a toilet seat. That's true, that's true. I dated her mama. And you know what? Sorry. One of the simplest ways to cut down on the spread of germs is to use something called the vampire cough. Did, did you say vampire? Oh, no. It's just that if a vampire had to cough, he would do it like this. <coughs> uh-huh, right. And ruin their cloaks. Do you have any idea how expensive wool is in Transylvania? Because of the euro. Well, other things you can do to help cut down on the spread of disease are you to wash your hands regularly. Don't come in if <sighs> you're sick. Oh. And get your flu shot. Also, I'm going to set up hand sanitizing stations around the office. No, no, no. They will cost you your life. Elaborate. The worst thing you can do for your immune system is to coddle it. They need to fight their own battles. If Sabre really cared about our well-being, they would set up hand desanitizing stations. A simple bowl at every juncture filled with dirt, vomit, fecal matter. I'm not, Exposing I'm not, yourself I'm not going to, to germs is the best way to make yourself stronger. So by that rationale, if I had to sneeze, I should just sneeze on you. Yes, I would welcome it. <coughs> You're welcome. The principle is sound. To avoid illness, expose yourself to germs, enabling your immune system to develop antibodies. I don't know why everyone doesn't do this. Maybe they have something against living forever. Hey everyone, this is Henrik from Empire in the UK. You're listening to Jay Scott on the Hook Rock. Everybody, what's going on? Welcome back to the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Scott. I'll be with you along the way here, as I always am. I appreciate you listening. Don't forget to check us out on Pantheon Podcast, the music network of podcasts. A bunch of great hosts on that uh, platform. You've got Carmen Apice, Vinny Apice, Mistress Carrie out in Boston, the Shout Out Loudcast. Cobras and Fire, Martin Popoff, a whole bunch of other music-related podcasts that you should all be listening to and and give them a, and give them a quick listen and see if you like them. So you can subscribe to us on any podcast platform wherever you're listening. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and enjoy our conversation, our music commentary, music interviews that we do. We focus on new rock, classic rock, and things that are affecting rock music in general and as we move forward here. So write us a review if you're so inclined, if you enjoy what you're listening to. We always appreciate the feedback. And we have another great interview today, uh, a band that I have, gosh, been listening to since probably the mid-'80s in in Chicago, a Canadian band, a band that, uh, in my opinion, does not get the recognition they deserve. Um, I know... Iron Maiden, Steve Harris is a huge fan of this band. Um, in fact, I think they did the Peace of Mind tour with them back in the day, and I think they also supported Steve on a recent solo or his, his uh, British Lion band album, I think he did. Or I think they, they supported them on, on that tour as well. But I would like to welcome in the guitarist and vocalist Carl Dixon from the band Coney Hatch. What's going on, Carl? How are you? I'm good, Jay. It's nice to be here. Thanks for calling in. Hey, man, I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to talk with you, learn more about you, learn more about this new live album that you got coming out. So um, 
yeah, this is uh, this is a uh, pretty exciting stuff for me. Cool. We always start the well, same way. <laughs> we always start the same way every time we have a new first-time guest, and that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? Oh, uh, I suppose, hmm, I can't think of a single moment except if you count rock and roll as being when I started playing an instrument, uh, when I began playing piano at age of three by ear to the national anthem in, uh, on TV each morning, when they used to start the broadcast day by playing the national anthem, I'd be playing along by ear when I was three years old on the home piano and my parents got me started in music lessons from there. So that must be the, that must be uh, where it began for rock and roll. I was taking in music continually um, uh, through the late 60s when the big explosion of rock really happened with the most famous and and timeless bands coming onto the scene. Uh, Of course, the Beatles and the Stones were a little before that, of course. But the um, first record I ever bought with my own money was our Canadian Beatles, the Guess Who, and their single Laughing which uh, I got the 45 of laughing and uh, the other hit undone on the flip side. So maybe that's a traceable moment. Interesting. Where did it go from there? You, you heard, you know, you started playing piano. Um, you know, the guess who was, you know, very influential in getting your journey going in rock music. When did it become you wanted to pick up a guitar and learn how to play guitar? Well, I began with that when I, you know, I was seeing all the bands uh, on TV and hearing the music on, on the radio that I love, Credence and, um, oh, gee, uh, the, the Guess Who was on the radio, the Beatles, the Stones, all the great stuff from the late 60s and the hit radio. I remember the, the grassroots, uh, Temptation Eyes really gave me chills. And uh, the te- top 40 at that time was just full of great music. So... I wanted to learn to play guitar like that. So when I was 10, I I insisted I had to give up the piano and switch to guitar. So I got a hand-me-down guitar from my uncle and my parents sent me to lessons for that. And I just hated it. (laughs) Partly the, the crummy guitar. Partly I was just unprepared for what a big gap there was between me as a beginner on guitar and the music I love to listen to. And the third thing was that um, it was difficult to play that that crummy instrument that uh, my uncle had given me because he didn't want it anymore. So I, it was a bit discouraging. And I, oh, and the folk music that our teacher was was getting us to learn. Old uh, there's an old fishing song from Newfoundland called "Jack Was Every Inch a Sailor," for instance. That was one of the songs we learned. And Little Boxes, the, the Pete Seeger song. Oh, boy. She was a folky from the, the 50s who was now just giving kids, passing along the, the folky music to the next generation of kids. And I just didn't get anything out of it. So gave it up and switched to drums after that. So you switched to drums and then, you know, was, was later on, when did you revisit it? Or obviously you revisited it. But what were who were some players that you know, were inspirational and influential to you? Well, I, when I started uh, by having enough money <laughs> to buy my own albums, I was getting uh, Johnny Winter, uh, Mountain with Leslie West, Humble Pie, the uh, performance live at the Fillmore with Steve Marriott and Peter Frampton on the record, and their Smokin' album where uh, Frampton left and he was replaced by Clem Clemson. Jethro Tull, uh, Aqualung was huge for me. The Who, just enormous. But, okay, so here's another big transforming moment. The Woodstock movie came out two years after the event. It reached the theaters. So in 71, I was a a kid at the local theater in the small town I lived at the time. And actually, I live back there again now. 
And there were, it was in the middle of winter time. There were only about 10 other people in the theater, but I just could not believe how magical these, these people were in the movie. Um, Alvin Lee, 10 years after, and Joe Cocker singing with a little help from my friends, and the unbelievable Sly and the Family Stone appearance that was in the Woodstock movie. All the just great excitement that was captured. Santana, part of the show, holy cow, with the soul sacrifice. It was just so desperately exciting, and I guess that probably really put me firmly in that boy i want to I want to be in that king, king, that magic kingdom if I have to be anywhere <laughs> that's interesting because you you see Woodstock, you see all these i mean gosh, I mean the lineup of that festival was just incredible, and there's so many great guitar players that grace the stage you know during yeah. you know during that time. And also, you got to see bands perform, you know, too, as well. I, I always look at the moment for me when I was a kid watching the US Festival um, in California as that moment where Wait. I saw Triumph and Judas Priest and Ozzy and Scorpions and Van Halen. It's like, wow, like look at these guys, because you know we didn't have the internet back then. You know, I know young people who are listening probably can't believe that, but you know we didn't have the accessibility. <laughs> that people have today where, hey, I want to go see what this was like in 19-so-and-so, or I want to see what this band's doing on tour. I want to go look up set lists and see what songs they're playing. We didn't have that. We just had magazines, and we just had images. So when we were able to see them live, I also remember the, I think the last Who concert in Toronto in 1982 was simulcasted. I think it was 82. Um, and uh, What was it? It was 85. It was 85, Okay. And uh, I just remember hearing that and also watching it on TV at the same time and, you know, tuning the radio up and syncing the radio with that and listening to that. And that's how, you know, we were lucky enough to get live music back then. Um, but it's just interesting how that moment not only maybe reintroduced you or reinfluenced you to play guitar, but also wanted to go and pursue being in a band. Yes, the that is the magic of a live performance, even if you're only seeing it secondhand in a movie, the excitement of a really amazing music performance transcends all medium and, uh, or media, I should say. And it just punches you right in the face with its power and, and hugeness and sweeps you up in it. So the energy that's attached to that is something that I felt I'd like to channel. And I, I guess, you know, whatever way we are formed in our genetics and our, the way our molecules are shaped cause us to vibrate in tune with whatever's meaningful to us. And so after that, even though I was good in school and I was good at athletics um, and I was doing all those things, I was still doing music in some form all the time on the side. You know, I was listening to my, my ever-growing record collection and analyzing that stuff and picking up on the feeling. Music was the uh, center of the culture at that time, which sadly it is not anymore. Well, for better or worse, let's say, because the people who don't miss it don't think it's sad. But at that time, it was a very powerful center of the Western world. And where it could spill over into the communist world, which we were all much more aware of in those days too. Um, the music from the West, if anybody in the Soviet Union could get their hands on it, they were just so amazed and thrilled. And it was, it was like getting your hand on a bar of gold if you could get a, a Beatles album. So the, the cultural um, energy of a whole society paying attention to these things together really translates into uh, seeping into every aspect of life. And so as I went through my development years, I was doing music on the side, as well as my school and my athletics, but I never imagined that I could be, as I say, one of those guys in that magic kingdom that had turned me on. I thought, I love it, and I want to keep getting better and better at it, but I don't see how I get from where I am here in small town Canada to that magic kingdom where those amazing people live, just couldn't see it. But I just loved doing it and I kept at it. 
and kept getting better and better until opportunities started to appear. And of course, the definition of luck, right, is when preparation meets opportunity. So I was constantly preparing. And then the opportunities jumped out in front of me because I kept improving my game all the time. As you developed in, in your journey in rock, you know, started and, and you know, it always starts with the influence and, and, and wanting to play the song that you like on the radio or wanting to emulate one of your heroes. But then you start wanting to develop your own sound. You start wanting to chase that that music you're hearing in your head. As you develop, yeah. as you kept going and, and you found yourself in, you know, advancing as a musician, how did you find yourself or how did how did Coney Hatch begin? You know, was that the result of what you were always, you know, filing away and developing as a musician and then it, you know the the song or the music you heard in your head became Coney Hatch? Is that how it happened? Did, were there other factors involved? There were multiple factors, but yes, that is uh how Coney Hatch came about. But Coney Hatch was actually my third serious rock band and probably fifth or sixth uh, in total of different combinations of musicians I'd worked in. And and so each group, I taught, some, I, I learned something about myself and about working with other people. And, you know, a huge influence on my development also was playing in the school band, my high school concert band. I was the lead um, concert master for the final year and I was uh, the lead percussionist and I got my qualifications in teaching level of drums and percussion at the same time as I was playing guitar and singing in, in my rock bands with my friends. And most guys start their career with their high school buddies. You find other guys in your school that also like that the music you like. and So you find a drummer, you find a guitar player, you find a, a bass player, you find someone who will sing. And then you, you take your first baby steps that way. And so my, some of my high school friends who weren't my friends so much until we became a band, we just saw each other in the halls, but then the music brought us into the same place. And I went on the, the road, my first tour was around, first of all, Northern Canada and then out in Eastern Canada, as well as a bunch of local gigs. And after the course of about a hundred shows, in fact, I think it turned out to be exactly a hundred shows, strangely, um, that fell apart and it turned out everybody else thought it was too hard to do this. And they went back to school, got, got jobs, got married. And as I say in, uh, in my book, one guy out of the five decided it was time to go look for his next band. And that's how I ended up moving on to the next serious band. I moved to Montreal for a couple of years and joined a band there that I'd met while out on tour. And from there, uh, Montreal was not proving to be the helpful place to advance my career goals. Partly the, the French-English split in the province of Quebec, and partly I wasn't working with the right guys, and Montreal was not the center of the music business in Canada. Toronto was and is still. So I moved back to Ontario, and Coney Hatch was, had already been going for about a year with uh, Andy Curran and Steve Shelsky and Dave Ketchum, and they had a singer who decided, <laughs> this is too hard, I want to go back to school. So they advertised, working rock, ba uh, rock band with management needs a guitar-playing singer. So I thought, wow, they're working. They have management, and I sing and play guitar. I should answer. So it was an ad in the Toronto Star newspaper, Classifieds that I called this number and the manager got me to come out to meet the band and I did an audition and they told me later, they knew right away I'd be the guy. And so the guy that was there before me dutifully went his way, went to university, became an engineer. He's very happy in Ottawa. And, uh, I became the singer of Coney Hatch. Wow. Wow. That's, that's it. I, I never knew that story. So that's, uh, that's, that's wow. That's, that's pretty interesting. Um, as you guys started yeah, but, out and, and began, I'm sorry. What prepared us for what really, I guess, the, the point of your initial question was, 
I was writing songs from the time I was 15 and always working on ideas because so- instinctively I knew if I, if I wanted to reach that magic kingdom where the, the big guys live, I had to have my own songs to get there. I was never going to get it by, you know, singing the best cover of a Doobie Brothers song. <laughs> I needed to have something of my own to offer. So I arrived into Coney Hatch uh, as a guy who was already writing and singing and making recordings. And when I went to see them for the first time with the other guy finishing out his stint with them, they played a bunch of their own songs that they'd come up with themselves. And at the time, I remember thinking, these are the strangest original songs I've ever heard a band do, but they've got 15 of them. Holy cow. Okay, well, there's something to work with here. So um, we we all had that really hardworking mentality of let's get our own music together, get our sound figured out, and we would get up early in the morning after playing in the bar until one or two the night before. We'd, we'd be in places for a week at a time. So when we were developing our songs, we'd get up early before the bar opened, even though we were all bleary and half asleep, have a coffee and start and go to where our stuff was set up on the, the bar stage and just start playing our instruments, kicking around, sharing our song ideas with the other guys and developing them that way to get them ready to try out on stage. That's why in those days, so many bands' first albums were their best albums because they developed their material in front of audiences before they ever recorded it. They always say, right, you have, you know, your whole life to write your first album and, you know, write your write the music that's on your first album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's, there's no doubt that that... The, we felt the squeeze after our first album and you know, the patterns, these things are a cliche because they're true the way things often go. How were you able to fuse your influences into the band, you know, Coney Hatch that was already playing out and performing and writing music? There was a wide open parking spot for me to park my bus in <laughs> because they, as I say, they had the most peculiar original songs before I joined, but they were always, uh, Andy in particular was always coming up with more ideas for his songs. And it's funny, out of all those songs they had at that time, and I had to learn them all when I joined the band, but then I started bringing my songs in as well. And only one of them ever made it to an album in later years. So that, it really was a transition stage the pro songwriters talk about how you write, you have to write about a hundred songs before you get to your first good one, your first keeper, you know? I don't know if we, had, maybe between us, we had a hundred songs before we got to that point. But um, my style was exactly what they didn't have in the band, which was a more commercial influence, having been a Beatles fan and a top 40 radio fan and. Uh, a love because I love to sing and I'm a strong singer. I love good melodies. So I always, as I say, I like a song with some meat on the vocals, on the bones of the vocal, because it really makes me happy to sing and soar with my voice. So that was not Andy's style as a singer. He was sharing the co, the uh, vocal duties on some of the songs at that time when I joined. And it emerged later. He only ever he didn't really want someone to come in and take over on the vocals. He wanted at most to share it with somebody, and that's what we ended up ultimately doing. Was it you know you, you mentioned about how you know your style and your influences were able to kind of maybe sharpen the music that Coney Hatch you know was writing and you know a little bit maybe more hooks and a little bit more refined. Was there any pushback, you know, that, you know, the new guy coming in and, you know, changing things or whatever? How was that, you know, with you guys back then? We were, we were a perfect balance of personalities in among the four guys in the band. If uh, people have any sort of astrological uh, leaning, they'd understand what I say when we had one each of earth, wind, fire, and water signs out of the four of us. And it really was a good 
balancing act when where you'd never go too far in one direction, but it also made us all receptive. And we all recognized the strengths of each, what each guy could do and the, 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 the strength of our unit, how we played together and how good it sounded. It's like when you have, you know, uh, when the Blackhawks finally got the right <laughs> group together to win the Stanley Cup. You, you teams just shuffling along until you get that 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 new that one element that you were missing that makes the difference, and they had something that was a good working unit, but it was missing what I could bring it. And you know, I also had more of the blues rock background that I loved, as I said, with with Johnny Winter and the Who and Humble Pie and and Free was my biggest favorite band, and Bad Company following that. Um, so I, I had a lot of that in my playing and my singing approach. No doubt, uh, there was Paul Rogers and, um, and people used to compare my, my voice to Lou Graham, a foreigner, when we were first putting our records out. But then funny enough, around that time, I saw a Hit Parader article where they asked Lou Graham his favorite singers and albums and his, his top 10. And when I looked at it, it was all the same as mine. So there is something to how much your influences shape your sound. And that's, that's where people can hear the similarity between what Lou would do and what I would do. I always heard that blues influence in devil's deck. I remember when I heard that song, when I was a kid, it, it reminded me, you know, of bad company it reminded me, it had, you know, elements of foreigner in there too, as well. It was such a unique mm-hmm you know, type of sound, you know, in Chicago, because we were, you know, I was used to listening to stuff like, you know, Y&T and, and, you know, the, you know, the new wave of British metal, you know, was prominent. Plus there was Van Halen and all that stuff. And it was very, um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was like a mix between like Foreigner and Bad Company. I always thought that. Yeah, cool. Well, I'll take that all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the, I guess, I was a, I was a, just a kid growing up in Northern Ontario, um, up at Sault Ste. Marie is where I started. And yet that music and, and especially the, the bluesy, more mournful or, um, not mournful, but, oh, I don't know, sad songs or the, the ones with that real anguish in them always really spoke to me. And when I think about back on it after all these years, I think part of it was the Estonian side of my family. My background on my mother's side is that when the Russians came in World War II to my family's home country of Estonia, my grandmother packed up the kids and fled the Russian second invasion because the first time they had sent her father and her brother off to Siberia to die in the concentration camps. So there's a, I think there's a little of that undercurrent in my outlook on the world ever since I was a child where I heard of these stories and, and that there's a, a sadness even in the, uh, in the sunniest days that, that uh, sticks to people from those backgrounds. And of course the blues is for that, isn't it? Yeah. You know, growing up here in Chicago, I mean, you you hear the blues when you're in the womb, you know, and, and you, uh, you know, when you come out and I still remember, in 1980, I was five watching the Blues Brothers for the first time and how that was, you know, such an impact on my life, too, as well, because I had that element. Plus, my grandfather was a lounge piano player back in the days of the speakeasies, so he liked all that big band stuff. So I had all these different types of influences, you know, circling me when I was a kid. And, you know, I settled in on rock and roll because, you know. That's what uh, that's what the neighborhood older kids were, you know, the older kids in the neighborhood were all listening to. And that's the value of having a, a variety of influences. You get a richer end result in the person, uh, in the musical outlook of the person who takes in a variety of influences. It's not healthy for us to just eat one kind of food all the time, and it's not good for our our development to just hear one kind of music all the time. So that's why I think it's really important that that young people get a variety of musical styles put before them, and then they can grow to appreciate what is valuable in each of them. The album is live from the Elma Combo. It's a bootleg style live album released on a limited edition vinyl. 
This is a celebration of Coney Hatch. If you have not, you know, if you're not familiar with the band or, you know, it's been a while since maybe you listened to them, this is a great place to revisit them because it, it, it's a very unique piece of music that's being released. What was the thought process behind this? Uh, well, you know, as in so many things, part of it was <laughs> sheer practical considerations. Um, first, we've never had a live album, even though we just had our 40th anniversary since the day I joined a couple of months ago. Um, and we've done thousands of live shows together, but we've never released anything in the way of live recordings. And we were also feeling very proud of the way the band sounds these days after all these years still singing and playing better than ever. Our new guitar player made us all excited about the music and our shows again. Uh, Sean Kelly, who's been uh, with Nelly Furtado and Lee Aaron's band, Canadian uh, female uh, blues rock singer. And, and uh, he had his own band called Crash Kelly, just a wildly good guitar player and a great guy. So we were lucky to, to get him in our midst starting in uh, 2015, that was, I guess. And so we were proud of the way the band's sounding, and we hadn't done a sh We had a few shows that were supposed to happen last year that were canceled because of the COVID restrictions going on all over the place. So we thought, well, we would love to do at least one highlight show on the year, if nothing else comes along. And Andy Curran, um, my partner with the band, was involved with the El Macombo's reopening. It, it was a very famous uh, rock, blues, jazz bar in Toronto since the 1940s, and it was uh, well known for most well known for the Rolling Stones doing a, a surprise appearance in the 70s there and part of their love you live album was based on recordings from that show um but like many famous places so that run uh, for a long time it ran down in its uh, quality so it needed some extensive renovation and he was part of that and it's in the renovation they installed some amazing recording studio and video recording equipment just as permanent installs in the building so we thought, okay, this is an amazing opportunity to capture the band on video and uh, with the highest quality recording gear we'll ever be in front of. So then uh, we decided to grab that opportunity. And Andy also thought he was worried that people, <laughs> there was a high ticket price being charged under the restricted uh, numbers that were being admitted in a place that hold, held 500, the government was only allowing 40 or 50 people. So then the, the place had, had to charge high ticket prices to uh, just cover the staffing costs to, and the, you know, the light bill, <laughs> the heating bill. So Andy felt very guilty about that. So he thought, well, we got to give people something more for their money than just a ticket to see us. So let's record an album and throw that in with the package. So that's the practical, practical consideration of it. And he really felt guilty because our ticket prices had to be so high and it turned into a live album. <laughs> when you're putting this together and you know, you're deciding to do this and you know, you're doing it under the circumstances, under a pandemic, and you're recording this you know, music, um, was it, you know, obviously you had the recording you know, equipment and the technology there that you just mentioned. How did you guys decide, you know, the set list? What did you guys, you know, you know, how did you determine what songs to put on this? Well, we have now a total of four full studio albums in release, three from the, the glory days and then one new one from a deal we did uh, that saw us release Coney Hatch 4 in 2013. Or was it 20? Yeah, 2013. Um, so we had four albums to choose from, but it's like any artist with a long history. There are certain songs that your fans are going to crucify you if you don't play them. And to tell you the truth, we enjoy them ourselves. Because the, the, the songs that were the most popular, kind of we know were the best ones. So we enjoy playing the best ones. 
as part of the set. So those are automatically going to be comprised half the set. Then there's some variables in terms of which ones do we want to play that maybe a couple that we haven't played in a long time that will be a nice surprise for the fans. Um, especially the ones that are signing up for the video package that was live on the night of the show. And then after that, it, you know, it comes down to a coin toss of, well, uh, got to have sort of a balance of how many songs I'm singing versus how many Andy will sing. So then we get to, okay, well, I'll trade you this one for that one or, okay. Yeah. I, re I really like playing this song you sing. Well, well we got to play the song that you sing, Carl. So, it, it, there's a bit of horse trading that way, and we finally get down to the, you know, the final tally of about 18 songs. On a night like that, as opposed to many festival things, we got to choose how long our set would be, and so we, we ran it to about 90 minutes, as opposed to a lot of festivals where you have to be off in an hour and you do a compressed, hurry-up version of your song list. So it gave us a little more room to try stuff and have fun with it, as well as satisfy what the fans would, would expect has to be in there. What are your thoughts on live streaming? I mean, this is a, a, a very, it's, it's been around for a while, but it's being utilized now as a very important piece for bands to stay in front of their fans, make some money because they couldn't tour last year. It, obviously the technology has improved even since last year, we you know started doing this on a regular basis, or bands started doing it on a regular basis at the beginning of the pandemic, and now sound systems are better, the technology is better, Live Nation's dumping a lot of money into the technology. My thoughts are that this is here to stay for a long time. It's a way to capture more money for the bigger entities that are involved in touring. And let's face it, you know, money money talks and. We, we talked at the beginning of the episode about your experience watching Woodstock, my experience watching the Us Festival. I know there's some pushback from fans saying it will never replace the live experience, and they're right. But it's also a way to be, be a gateway to a young fan, like you were watching Woodstock, like I was watching the Us Festival, into becoming a fan of rock music. I, yes, I, I see all the, the points that you're making there as, as true and, and logical. I, my hope is that it will become what they call an ancillary experience, a, a way for, for fans and the mildly curious to see a band without the full commitment of getting dressed up and getting in the car and going down to the, <laughs> the stadium and, and fighting through the crowd. Although that's all part of the experience of live shows as well. Um, I, I think it is here to stay, but I, I do hope that it's just as an additional way to enjoy bands and their music. It's even if it eradicates the, the live experience, it can never replace it. Meaning it'll never be that experience. It's, it's like watching like watching a sports event on TV when you see the the music concerts on on a video presentation or a live streaming in that they focus only on the action and you're missing all the surrounding senses that go with it and you know I've always maintained because of my long experience of playing gigs for for 10 people to 100,000 people in various settings over the years the, the most exciting and fun rock and roll shows that I've played in were always in some place that was a little bit sleazy, kind of crappy or rundown. The air, there was no air conditioning. There were no seats. People had to stand and kind of mill uh, uh, around and bump into each other. And, and that, uh, that just sort of excitement of, we're here to focus on a show, not to be comfortable and, and be at a safe distance from it. Because music is meant to be played for people and with people. And that's why we have it. Otherwise, it just becomes the streaming experience and even the Woodstock experience is as exciting as it was seeing that show on, uh, on the movie screen. Or that that festival 
it's not, of course, the same experience as being in the room with the music and the people and the audience and having that complete sensory wraparound that a concert live music experience gives you. I agree. You know, it's, it's similar to, you know, watching a baseball game, you know, I mean, right. You know, when you watch TV, it's focused on the pitcher and home plate. And as the ball gets hit or whatever, you know, the, the camera follows the action. However, it doesn't replace sitting in the stands, sitting in the stadium, Wrigley field and watching a game and being present for the game. And you know, you mentioned something very interesting too, about, you know, these old, crappy venues that you know have so much history involved you know in those places i took my son a couple years ago up to milwaukee to see the rank of tours at uh at this place called the rave jack white's band with brendan benson and they didn't have any ac it was the middle of july and the show was incredible and my son was 14 at the time and we walked out and i looked at him and go that's how it's done he's like what do you mean i go the sweat the synergy with the crowd, you had to put your phone in a, in a pouch so you couldn't have your phone out. So everybody was not just physically present, but also mentally present as well. And there was such a synergy with the, with the band and the crowd. And I said, that's what it felt like when I was younger. Now everybody's got their phone out. They're looking you know, through you know, the, the camera phone or they're texting while a song's playing. They're not 100% committed um, as they were you know, when, when, when I would go to a show when I was younger and, and you, when you mentioned that experience about being at these old venues, it brought me back to that memory with my son. Yeah. Well, it is, it is tr- a tragedy in my opinion that there are so many people who don't know the difference, uh, what the experience is like without having it mediated through that little screen in your hand. I mean, to be, to attend the concert of some legendary performer and stand with them staring at the screen instead of at them and having that between you and the experience of their energy to me is, is the biggest waste of it's throwing away 50% of the experience to focus on that little screen in your hand and experience it through that. It's almost as if a, a great number of people don't think it's real unless they're seeing it through their phone uh, or they, they think they need to capture it and share it with somebody when they're done or they'll always have a souvenir of it like the way we used to put, put uh, concert ticket stubs away in a, in a drawer. Um, but it, it really is a block to the full experience of a performer giving you all they have in that moment and in that space and the connection that performers are hungry for. They're desperate to make that connection with their audience when they're on that stage in that room with everyone, because that's what makes it valid for them. I know that for me, when I do a show, I don't feel like I'm going to play and sing for or at people. I'm going to do it with them. And I want to include them in the experience to have as much joy as I'm getting from it. So the the screens in people's hands are the devices rather are one terrible thing. But you know the the step less than that that I mentioned to begin with the comfort of sitting in an air conditioned lounge in a in a cushy chair sitting back while some guy's trying to pour pour his heart and soul out to you. That's never going to fly. And an air-conditioned rock gig, gig with chairs is, is not the way it's meant to be. <laughs> yeah, I, I walked out of that show, and I was just, I was drenched. It looked like I just, you know, ran through a hose because it was so hot. It was like, it was like 90 outside, and it had to be at least 120 inside. And, it, you know, it was one of those old theaters sure. where the circulation wasn't good. And But, you know what, you're there, and, you know, drink a lot of water and enjoy the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now that you, you you mentioned that it was your your 40th anniversary this past year, is there any plans to support this? I know things are still uncertain with touring and playing live, but is is there any discussion about once things do open up in both Canada and you know the United States to to do some 
to tour dates to support this and celebrate your 40th anniversary? Um, we, we'd love to. Um, it's, you know, next year will be the 40th anniversary of our first album. Uh, we were together a whole <laughs> nine months before we got signed to an international record deal. Seemed like forever at the time. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, sure, we, we keep trying to make some plans for dates and they keep getting postponed or canceled. Uh, we were supposed to go to Germany last year to as part of a little European run. That got postponed. We were supposed to go again this September and Germany shut down things again as did all of Europe. Um, we uh, have been trying to get a follow-up tour with Steve Harris's British Lion Band again in, in Canada and maybe into the States if we can line it up properly. And that's been postponed twice. It, everybody's kind of uh, hesitant to make any plans at the moment. So we kind of have to hold our breath. Right now, the only date we have on the calendar that is for, oh no, we have two for next year. One in Germany and one in Tonawanda, New York, suburb of Buffalo, at a theater there with our friend Kim Mitchell, um, who produced our first album. So at the moment, that's as much as people have been willing to commit to, uh, to getting out there for more dates. So Marcus Down is interested, but gee, it's tough to, to pin anything down yet. Yeah, that's the frustrating thing for both, you know, artists and fans. You know, fans, we want to get back to see live shows under, you know, safe conditions. You know, we just don't want to be, at this point, asses to elbows, you know, like like a lot of venues are. I don't know if I'm ready to do that, even though I'm vaccinated. I'm still a little hesitant. But, and also the artist, I don't know if people realize how much things are going to change with backstage and communication and, and doing things because it used to be, you know, its own little city back there prior to a show. And now you've got to, you know, you've got to incorporate some, some safety regulations, some restrictions, and it's going to be interesting to see how, what, what happens with that. The, the traditional backstage party will probably not be <laughs> recognizable uh, in the, in the next years. No, um, the free for all that it was probably I hope it's not gone forever, but it's certainly going to be on hiatus for a while. Sure. Is there any plans to release any new music moving forward? Well, interestingly, at the time that we did this Elma Combo show that resulted in the two record vinyl set, we were already mixing the tracks for a different live show from Germany that we did two years ago. That is a different uh, song list with a few of the some crossover, as I said, our essentials, but it was a really exciting show and the band played, played great. And to go with that, we recorded two new songs that will be included in that package. So we're still just finishing mixing that album and the two new songs are mixed. I believe I have to talk to our engineer about that and then seeking a deal for that one. The, the vinyl, set from the Elmacombo is, of course, a limited edition. So that's a real collector's item. We'll be looking for a, more, a wider international release for the German album when, it's, when it is ready to go. That's awesome. Carl, it's been a blast. And, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to tell you, Andy and I have been talking in recent weeks. Gee, we have all this time. We should be writing new songs and just think about doing a new album. And, and just for the fun of it at this point. So we've been kicking some ideas back and forth to get new songs started. Well, Carl, it's been a blast. I really do appreciate the conversation. I look forward to the release of this live bootleg album. Um, looking forward to hopefully seeing you guys on the stage here at some point and uh, in the future too. You know, the, the new music, more live music, it's all good. So, so thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate the uh, the talk. It was really interesting. And uh, yes, you took me to some interesting conversational places. Nice questions. Thank you. Well, I'm glad I did, Carl. And, and thank you very much. And like I said, I'm excited to do this. I've always been a fan of you guys and uh, can't wait, like I said, to hopefully see you guys soon live here in Chicago. Great, Gene. Thanks a lot, man. All right, everybody. That's Carl Dixon from the band Coney Hatch. I am Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy. Subscribe to us, follow us, wherever you get your podcast. 
We will talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.